tells the MOD how much cash it's got to spend. The first line of national defence is sound public finances and a balanced defence budget. But did the Defence Secretary get the deal he wanted? We hear how senior Afghan officers are getting trained at Shrivenham and our wives and sweethearts, how a Royal Navy toast has been modernised. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper, standing in for Kate Jabot. The Ministry of Defence is going to have to save another £850 million from its annual budget under new spending cuts announced yesterday by the Chancellor. Hundreds more civilian jobs will go in defence but will be lost by natural wastage rather than more redundancies. There won't be any new job cuts to the forces and their progression pay rises have been protected. But a 1% cap on annual rises means inflation will continue to push basic pay down in real terms. Well, in a moment we'll hear from BFBS reporter James Hurst and our defence analyst Christopher Lee. But first of all, let's hear a bit of what the Chancellor had to say yesterday in the Commons. We still have the finest armed forces in the world and we intend to keep it that way. The first line of national defence is sound public finances and a balanced defence budget. My honourable friend, the Defence Secretary, is helping to deliver both. He and his predecessor, my honourable friend for North Somerset, have filled the £38 billion black hole they inherited in the finances of the Ministry of Defence. Now we continue to ensure we get maximum value for money from what will remain at over 2% of our GDP, one of the largest defence budgets in the world. The defence resource budget will be maintained in cash terms at £24 billion. The equipment budget will be £14 billion and will grow by 1% in real terms thereafter. We will further reduce the civilian workforce and their allowances, renegotiate more of the hopeless PFI contracts signed in the last decade and overhaul the way we buy equipment. But my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, has rightly been clear throughout that he is not prepared to see a reduction in Britain's military capabilities. Chancellor, there speaking yesterday. James, it all sounds pretty positive for the defence budget there, defence in general. But is it as good as it sounds? I, I think certainly for uh, quite a lot of people who've been uh, looking at this for some time, there was perhaps a sense of relief mm. uh, that it, it could have been significantly bigger. I mean, we were understanding that the initial uh, request from the Treasury was a 5% cut. What you have to look at is that phrase, maintaining the budget in cash terms. Now, <laughs> what that actually means is you get the same same number of pound coins delivered, but you've actually got less spending power with it. And that's inflation causing Because that. of inflation. So it, it equates to about £850 million of savings. You have to find about 1.9% of the budget. That said, it could have been, you know, you look at departments that have taken 8%, mm. 10% hits. Um, it, it is, it's not... Yeah, it, but it comes. But then people go, well, yeah, but it comes on top of other cuts as well that have already been made. We saw seven and a half percent roughly in two thousand and ten, another roughly one and a half percent announced last year. So not as bad as other departments. You're right, ten percent, eight percent. A lot of those figures banded about. Um, but what about the jobs thing? No military losses here. No, no military losses. There's still another round of army redundancies to come, but that's from the, the, the previous spending rounds that we've heard about. What we're being told is hundreds 
of civilian jobs, not thousands, mm-hmm. will go, that they will be able to lose them by uh, restricting recruitment, in other words, not filling places as they become vacant. What's not yet clear is what kind of positions they're looking at saving the workforce. And you have to remember, you hear the phrase civil servants, you think of people seen as pen pushers in Whitehall. Uh, Actually, the vast majority of uh, MOD civil servants do not work in Whitehall or Westminster or anywhere in London. They they can work at military bases, places like Abbey Wood on on equipment. MOD police come under the banner of civil servants, the guard service, people who do work alongside the armed forces day to day. So, yes, Military jobs have been protected, but I think those working in the military may notice these job losses. Mm, yeah, because it's 20, 30, 40 years of, of civilian jobs coming into work very closely with, with the military on their sort of frontline home base uh, position there. Christopher, what do you think about this? Do you think the Defence Secretary got the deal he wanted here? Uh, what he did is, uh, is hang out until the last moment. If you look at the other departments that James was talking about, a lot of them went in early and uh, they got screwed basically by the Treasury. So he he did that quite well. Um, The problem comes up in about eight, nine years' time. Hmm. I mean, you know you were talking about, uh, for example, inflation. Services don't have inflation the same as everybody else does, and that's partly because of equipment. Say a 15-year program to introduce equipment, therefore inflation is a variable, and you can't pencil it in. The other thing, and especially this applies to the army, uh, after 9-11... All the plans for the army uh, were shelved. Everything the army did was not what they planned to do either. And so, the, I mean, the term that's being used is that the, as a reaction to 9-11, the army was bent, and it was bent out of recognition. You, you, you had to figure out what you could do with it in the, in, in the future. And then the future over the next five, ten years, which was what we're really talking about, is how, does, how do the services match what they think is affordable, what the government, the Treasury, really thinks is affordable, with the government's strategic ambitions? Mm. They don't know what those strategic <laughs> ambitions at the moment. You know, we talk about METs, manpower, equipment, training, and sustainability programmes. That is the most important thing that you've got to match. Everything you hear from the Chancellor, and you'll hear it again uh, from the Chancellor next year, on the same subject, you've got to match it to that. The last point, and this is a particularly important point now, um, is that some of the schemes they're putting in to balance the whole thing and say, look, we can afford to have the army, for example, we want. Uh, we can afford to have the carriers that we want. We can afford to have Trident we want. Nobody has tested the sums on those. And that is the most important. That's the next thing to watch for. The sums are all going to be tested this autumn. And it may be that big projects... It may be that somebody... I was, at, I was at a dinner the other night and there were a couple of guys working, talking uh, and they said, OK, let's, let's hold a vote on this with the Navy here. Quite senior Naval officers here. If you had to go for Trident or the Carriers, which mm. one would you have? <laughs> and they all said Carriers. Carriers is force projection. Also, Carriers means you have to have a surface fleet in support, etc. And they all said, OK, where's the money coming from? They all said Trident. Now, these are guys talking off the top of their head. 
but it's that sort of thinking that's going to come up again in about September. It is. It's going to be very interesting. And, of course, Trident, the government, has pinned its colours so firmly too. That's going to be a difficult Well, all three have. From there. All three, yes. Yeah, I mean, no, no, none of the political parties say, let's bin Trident. Yeah. Let's save the money. They talk about 25 billion saving. It's not 25 billion saving at all. It's about 111 at yeah. the moment. The, the Liberal um, Democrats billions. are pushing to say we can do this more cheaply by not doing like for like. And they think that's where savings can be made in defense. Yeah, but not the sort of savings that the people are talking about. I mean, even the 25 billion. 25 billion is a one-shot saving. Yeah. Uh, but the important thing, the other thing that's uh, is, is being talked about at the moment, just supposing the, uh, the carriers don't make it, hmm. uh, what would you do with them? Well, you sell them to someone like India. You can do that. But once you don't need carriers, then they say, oh, hang on, we don't need, therefore, the frigate and Detroit yeah. escorts. We don't need the two sub, uh, uh, conventional submarine uh, escorts either. Or the marinized aircraft that fly from them. Uh, the F-35s doesn't happen anyway, and we still don't know how much they're going to cost because the Americans haven't questions. decided how, how much they're going to cost yet. And so that's the problem. Look in the autumn mm. and you'll see the real truth and the consequences of what the Chancellor was talking about yesterday. We shall do that in the autumn, for sure. And a lot of what you were talking about, James, thanks for the time being, but do, do stay with us, because you're talking about the way we move forward, how 9-11 has changed things. And earlier on today, the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Peter Wall, addressed some of those concerns as he spoke to the Royal United Services Institute Land Warfare Conference in London. Claire Sadler was there for BFBS. Uh, she's on the line now from Westminster. Claire, what did General Wall have to say about the future of the Army? Did he mention yesterday's spending announcement? Well, he did. His, his speech today was just short of 30 minutes, and he addressed three key themes. Firstly, Army 2020, not surprisingly, came in a year ago, so interesting to take a look at that and see how progress has been made. Secondly, the changing nature of our operational landscapes, and then uh, finally, the adaptation in the art aftermath of 9-11, uh, as Christopher was talking about just then. And yes, he did mention the spending review. James was saying how uh, a few people probably breathed a sigh of relief on the, uh, the spending review announcement and in fact today uh, General Peter Wall said that it was helpful and it meant that the plan remained uh, possible. Of course a few weeks ago he'd said that Britain's chances of success in the future could be seriously damaged by any spending cuts and today despite all the changes the army's going through he did say that it was in good shape. Let me expand on affordability for that is a key aspect of implementing Army 2020. We must ensure that we go forward with a workable balance between manpower, equipment, training and sustainability, met in the jargon. There's always more work to do to refine our understanding of costs, to establish more effective contracting systems for key services, to ensure military manpower is doing essential military roles and to deliver a coherent equipment fleet. Money-wise, we're not flush. But thanks to yesterday's very helpful spending review settlement for defence, our plan remains workable. At the moment, our Mets are in balance. In the future, by doing things differently, we will be able to sustain a brigade on operations indefinitely and put a fighting division into the field alongside our air and maritime counterparts as part of the new joint expeditionary force. In sum, then... Army 2020 implementation is on track. Claire, what did CGS have to say about possible future operations? 
Well, I thought it was interesting what he said about the landscapes uh, uh, of future conflict. He did. He said they, they didn't look any less challenging than our recent conflicts, more so, in fact, he said, because we aren't shrinking our forces because the world's becoming a safer place. We're doing it because of the economic pressures. And he said that while there's all the uh, talk of avoiding enduring campaigns, don't want to get into the length of campaigns we've got into in the past, particularly Afghanistan, he said we have to be prepared to intervene in the nation's interests if needs must. And he spoke of building bilateral relationships around the world too. We're in the foothills of rolling out this plan. We're doing this by designating brigade headquarters in our adaptable force to priority regions of the globe. Relationships are being established and the potential is very clear if this is done carefully. For example, 4 Infantry Brigade from Catterick is designated to the Maghreb and will be taking the lead in establishing a training system for some 2,000 Libyan soldiers in the next few months as part of an international effort to enable them to secure their borders following our initial intervention. Christopher, what did you make of what he had to say, particularly the way and the tone in which he was saying it? Um, I quite like, it was one point he was, he, was, he was going on and he started talking about, the, I've got it here, the complex cross-government and multinational mix. What does that mean? And Well, it, there was an American general in, in, in the audience and he was the only one who didn't have the eye-glazed overlook. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, let's get down to the basics. What is important is something like the fact that four brigade up at Catrick, mm. they're thinking Maghreb. Yeah. I mean, 18 months ago, I bet not one of them up at Catrick ever heard of Maghreb. I mean, they probably uh, So now they understand it. Now they're getting in there. Now they're saying, what was the French experience, for example, in Mali, etc. And that is putting up the world in, in patches and saying, right, you learn about that. Get ready to go in there. One of the problems they've had in the past, for example, and I think the general is really good on this, he says, hearts and minds, we haven't always been that good because we didn't know what we were hearts and minding. Mm. We didn't know what the people were about. We haven't got enough interpreters. We don't have enough uh, 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 speakers uh, of languages. We don't know customs. And they don't know us. Now, this is, the, this is coming back to the, the whole of the government's strategic ambitions, that you can build uh, what you think a balanced and affordable uh, forces but until you know what you've got to match it to, the whole thing might not work. That's the thing we've been facing, isn't it? Since the end of the Cold War, we've not known how it's going to go, and, and this continues. James, what did you make of it? There's a really interesting point here that, that he brought out in this move from um, uh, campaigning to contingency. and it, it, Effectively, I think it's about not just the forces physically and in terms of their kit being adaptable, but also he was saying, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you've spent years working with the weight of knowledge that's gone before you. Mm. You're not going to have that in a new campaign. He says we've got to shift from our thinking, Christopher pointed to, we've got to shift from what to think, how to think. The other point he's making about this is that, um, a point I've heard him make a couple of years ago, actually, public aversion to risk has increased as campaigns have worn on. And again, you can perhaps yes. manage that more. And he's saying, we are going to need to recalibrate our tolerances, was his phrase, if decisive outcomes are to be achieved in the future. What he's saying is, it's more dangerous when you launch a new operation, and at some time we're going to have to. So there's one point, Tim, is this. The army desperately needs to get the reserves up from 15, what's the TA types, up mm. from 15,000 to 30,000. Uh, a general says... Listen, what we've got to do, we'll need a cultural shift 
in British society for that to happen. They've got to have a different attitude towards the reserves, etc., etc. Mm. After Afghanistan, people start pulling out. Then what I, you know, with respect, call the Wooden Bassett effect starts to drift away. Yeah. The defence uh, attitudes towards defence spending drifts away. Attitudes towards em- uh, of employers to guys who are going off saying, you're going for six months? Uh, no, that's not what we signed up for. We, we're not quite sure about this. I think the army still hasn't cottoned on to the fact that you can't simply have a, a, a shift in British society. British society does that itself. Well, you can't, exactly. You, you, yeah, yeah. you can't do that. And the other part of it, therefore, is that I think if they think they can get another 15,000 reservists to be trained up to the levels they need, mm. they go work at it very hard because they actually can't get the 15,000 they've already got up to operational standards as it is, except in certain areas like medics and uh, linguists. Well, cultural shifts, as as both of you have mentioned, take generations, don't they? They don't happen in two or three years. They take 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, Claire, let's just go back to you finally. And and, and talking of different cultures coming along to this today, there were a lot of uh, foreign people in the audience there. Who's there? Yeah, there were, well, there, it was a rather large audience today, uh, a lot of uh, various ranks from the army, of course, also uh, today members of the Royal Navy and the RAF too. In fact, General Wall said today that he spoke of the recent conflicts we've been in and one of the positive outcomes of it has been the fact that it's brought the three services together and he really sort of made the point that that shouldn't be lost as we move forward to a, a different sort of type of, of future. But yes, there were... Um, um, visitors from 13 countries there today, so a very wide audience. Claire, thanks very much indeed. James as well, thank you. Still to come, the senior Afghan officers studying at Shrivenham and tough times for forces families in Germany. We hear from this year's AFF conference. PFBS SIPREP. Now then, Nottingham is the host city for National Armed Forces Day events this coming Saturday. It's the fifth year it's been run, grew out of Veterans Day. And the organisers say it's an opportunity to raise public awareness and show support for the contribution made to our country by those who serve and those who have served in Her Majesty's Armed Forces. Um, I've been to the last couple of these. We were down in Plymouth last year together, Christopher. It's a very well-supported event, a lot of effort put in to publicise it. Why, though? Why do you think it is? It's, it's something which, you know, the Armed Forces Day... In, in some ways is sort of keep the army and the public eye, the old cape philosophy. Mm. Um, if you take last, last year, which was, at, uh, which was at Devonport, which was at Plymouth, Plymouth Ho, you can imagine it being there because it's a very much a sort of garrison town and the, the Plymouth fields military, and yeah. it feels military for all services as well. And you sort of stand on the Ho and you look out to the sea and you say, that was history radiating through, the ghost doesn't of, it? Of, 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 yeah. a Drake. Uh, when you start shift around the country, you come back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago um, with uh, uh, General Wall saying that, you know, we've, we've got to have a go at society and, and step changes in society. So is this just publicity then? Well, it's more than publicity. It's saying, look, this is what you're paying for, but this is this is keeping you in the public eye. It's like last, uh, or uh, this week has been uh, reservists wearing their uniforms, mm. for example, to work. Um, there is a deep down fear that the British public, after Afghanistan, may lose interest. But I tell you, so, uh, as an example today, of the, of, I think, of the size of their problem, uh, Portsmouth today. Mm. Portsmouth, the home of the Royal Navy. You see, uh, we've got a parade, 120 ratings, and, a, and about sort of five or six officers. 
uh, marching through Portsmouth. Mm. Now, they wouldn't even crowd out Dockyard Gate with 120. But isn't that showing they're doing ten something? Ago. Well, yeah, but ten, yeah, but 120 of them, and, and and this weekend at Portsmouth. But everybody, and if you're if you're around Portsmouth, you know, if, if you're elsewhere, uh, two ships, two ships open. What used to be Navy Days at one point, Navy Days. I know it's a different period, but Navy Days used to be uh, Chatham. You can't go to the Chatham no. now, except to see sort of uh, dockyard uh, ships. But what I'm saying is trying to keep the public abreast with this. All they see is a proud sight of 120 guys marching uh, through Portsmouth. Uh, and you think, you know, what are we paying for? What can the, they the do? Point, though, the, the counterpoint to that could be that, you know, 14, 15 years ago, there were loads of ships parked in Portsmouth not doing anything, so you could have a look around them. Now we've got the ships we need to do the core jobs, and we haven't got the wastage. That's why there are so few available to march through Portsmouth. Do you know how many ships the Royal Navy's got in British waters at the moment on, on protection duties? I'm guessing about one. One. Yeah. One. One. And that's due for, uh, that's due for an AMP in, yeah. a, in about three weeks' time. I think that's it. And when you want people to spend more money, mm. you've got to actually show them what they're spending it on, and I'm not sure. And that's why Nottingham's got to be a success. We'll see if it is next week on SITREP and, of course, on British Forces News. Let's move on now to, to something that arguably is a success, very much so, the UK's Defence Academy at Shrivenham. And it's been playing a key role in developing leadership within the Afghan National Army. A select few of the best officers are being sent there to study on the Advanced Staff and Command course. As the Afghan Army and police assume responsibility for security right across Afghanistan, good leadership is going to be crucial for success. And Charlotte Cross has been to meet one Afghan officer who's just reached the end of the course. The Advanced Command and Staff course run by Shrivenham's Defence Academy is famous throughout the world and foreign countries select their best officers to attend. Of the 256 on this year's course, 52 were international students from more than 40 nations. They include Lieutenant Colonel Yusuf Sazai from the Afghan National Army. Based in Kabul, he first joined the army during the Soviet era and has watched it grow since 2001. Despite progress, he says it would still be impossible to receive this standard of training in Afghanistan. This is, I think, a very important uh, step toward developing uh, future ANA capabilities. To pass on the skills to the other ANA officers who are not able to come here because not everyone can come. The staff course is academic. Following a 10,000-word dissertation, students qualify with a master's degree from London University's King's College. Yusuf says his analytical skills have improved, crucial for problem-solving and high-level leadership. The classroom represents an opportunity for officers from different nations to work closely together. While Yusuf acknowledges the problems in Afghanistan with so-called green-on-blue attacks, where Afghans turn their weapons on their allies, he lays the blame firmly at the door of the insurgents. I can see that they, they will fail, but I, I cannot assure that they will be totally fail because the enemy is trying hard. They, they use any way to prevent uh, development of the armed forces and to prevent trust among the ISAF and the ANA. They, they are going to try. It will be uh, a matter of time to see the, the progress. The Afghan army and police are now taking over the lead for security fully from NATO across Afghanistan. It's been described as a hard-fought milestone. Our enemies... They are trying to deceive people uh, by giving them uh, a wrong 
image about the ANA and existence of the foreign troops in Afghanistan and try to destabilize our country and weaken our country. I hope the ANA would be capable of defeating such threats. That's all I hope. As Yusuf prepares to return to Kabul in a few weeks' time to resume his position in the Afghan army, his hopes for the future will be shared by many. Charlotte Cross reporting there. Christopher, that, that shows that they're getting a pretty high level of training. Shrivenham is, uh, well, world-renowned for this sort of training. That's right, but Colonel Yusuf will be the first to tell you this. If the Afghan National Army is going to succeed, 350,000 guys in charge of security, if it's going to succeed, what it needs most of all in training is senior NCOs and company commander level. If it doesn't get that, it has no uh, middle management. If it has no middle management, it won't work. Same with every army. Sandhurst in the sand's going to solve that, though, isn't it? Uh, It won't solve it. It'll start to solve it. This thing takes 10, 12 years to work through. These guys may only have 18 months. Interesting. We'll have to see how that one goes. From the front line now to the family, and the Army Families Federation has held its Germany conference in Hereford today. Britain's withdrawal of troops from Germany is well underway, and it's due to be completed by the end of the decade. SITREP's Kate Jabot is there, and she's spoken to AFF's chief executive, Catherine Spencer. She asked her whether the move back to the UK, the longer deployments we're now seeing, and redundancies meant that it was the hardest time ever for British forces' families living in Germany. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, certainly they're in an area that they know is closing down and they're very concerned about what's going to be on offer for them as they see command drawing down. And that's really those concerns that we heard spoken about today. In terms of longer deployments, more training, it's obviously a difficult time for families with separation. What can be done to support them and how can their fears be allayed? Well, I think command are certainly aware of the issues involved with longer tours and they they will be putting measures in place in Hona to try and ensure that families have access to plenty of welfare I think it's really a case as well of families keeping their unit welfare officer well informed and speaking to organisations like AF so that we can feed back to command if more needs to be done. Education, where people are going to live in future, obviously huge issues. What has today achieved in terms of helping people deal with the future? Well, I think it's what it's achieved is really making sure that command have a strong message from families as to what's acceptable, what they expect of the future. And it's also allowed families to hear from command, to hear what the sort of issues and areas that they're working on. And certainly my understanding from command is that they are doing their utmost to ensure that families have the right support right to the end, to the end of drawdown. And of course, they do have experience of closing areas in Germany. Of course, they've closed Osnabrück in the past. So they've got experience to learn from to ensure that things improve in the future. In that light, it has been said that the services and the quality will be kept right up until the end, this cliff-edge idea. Is that possible? Will it happen? Well, that's certainly the plan, and I think Command are very committed to that idea, but it's something that we'll continue to look at, and we rely on families coming to us to tell us when they think things are wrong, so we can feed that back into Command if they need to alter their plans. There we go. That was Catherine Spencer, the Chief Executive of the Army Families Federation, talking to Kate Jabot in Germany. Now... It's something that Christopher has got to be in his bonnet about. A traditional toast made at Royal Navy Mess dinners on Saturday nights has been updated to reflect cultural changes. It used to be our wives and sweethearts. That's right, and the response to that used to be, may they never meet, and um, certainly everybody sort of thought, have a drive chuckle after that. But it's now been changed. Uh, According to the second sea lord, um, uh, Admiral uh, David Steele, 
he thinks it should now be our families. That's but that's right, more, isn't it? Well, it is, but it used to be, for example, is, is one every day of the week. Yeah. So you get absent friends on Sunday, our ships at sea. On Tuesday, our men, that's been changed to our sailors. Um, and then ourselves, because no other bugger would ever actually sort of say anything <laughs> for us. Um, um, Thursday was a bloody war or a sickly season. That was because promotion prospects weren't very good. And so if you had a bloody war, you'd get sort of the guys above you being, being, being slaughtered. You'd no, get the job. Uh, a willing foe and sea room meant you could beat up on the French. That yep. was the whole thing for that. And you could take prize money. But they're going to change it because it's all... A, a sort of a PC now, which is a bit late to do it. But can you imagine it? Instead of shouting out man overboard, it's now person overboard um, and uh, person the sides and uh, person the yards. But uh, they're specific. You would say man overboard. That's just English parlance. It's been there forever. These are specifically wives and sweethearts. That's specifically men talking about their girlfriends. And that doesn't have a place in the modern Navy, surely. Or are we losing tradition? Uh, I don't think it really. I don't think it's losing tradition sort of very much as the fact that the Navy has a different toast every night and that's tradition enough. It doesn't matter what you actually say. Just so um, long as you get the I drink t- every night. It, it, well, <laughs> it, uh, just the one. Just the one, yeah. actually. But you see, the whole thing's been going on since the 18th, uh, 19th century. You know, grog. Yes. Rum, mm. named after uh, Admiral, Admiral Vernon, Grog, because he used to wear a, a, a cape which was made of grogman, which is like a buckram stiff stuff. And when he started watering the, the rum, they said that's old Grog's fault. The, the, the term stuck. So um, it doesn't really matter. And I'll tell you one other thing. Most of these great traditions, they're only about 20 or 30 years old anyway. Absolutely. Well, traditions come, traditions go. Christopher, thanks indeed for your help and... Uh, Insight this week on the programme, thank you, and to all the other reporters and guests as well. Now, if you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can send us a tweet. It's at BFBS SITREP. And, of course, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Armed Forces Day, of course, this Saturday. Full coverage on BFBS Radio and on British Forces News. Kate Jabot is back in the chair next week. From me, Tim Cooper, and the team, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.